Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The world continues to turn this morning, ladies and gentlemen, as the economy grinds slowly into life. Yes, there is life uh, after coronavirus. Chancellor Rishi Sunak is preparing for something of a giveaway budget next week, it would seem, extending the stamp duty holiday, slashing VAT for the hospitality business and axing the 5p fuel duty rise. And with the news that schools are starting up in less than two weeks, music festivals are back on, it looks as though... Something is about to change, doesn't it? Speaking of schools, it looks like our instincts on parents yesterday were proved to be entirely correct. Despite a YouGov poll saying exactly the opposite, 88% of more than 12,500 listeners will not agree to their children wearing masks all day in the classroom. Now, as if that wasn't bad enough, uh, there's an even bigger uh, survey that we did on YouTube uh, in which 55,000 people actually voted, and all of them... 69% of them said uh, they will not support children being made to wear face masks in school. So I think as far as that conversation is concerned, uh, it's all over. Uh, Looks like uh, Nick Gibb, the education minister, told Julie Hartley Brewer this morning on Breakfast Show that neither the wearing of masks or the testing of children will be mandatory. So I'd still like to hear from your parents today as to what you're going to do uh, if the school tries to impose it. I don't think they can. We'll kick off this morning with Brendan Chilton, our favourite Labour politician, on the way things are going. We might even have a chat about Brexit, which seems to have disappeared off the radar for the moment. 0344 499 1000. We'll be heading north of the border to get the latest on the salmon sturgeon debacle. Yesterday, the current First Minister of Scotland actually said that just because the previous First Minister was cleared in a court of law, it didn't mean he wasn't guilty. Quite extraordinary. Stuart Weir uh, will explain. Plus, Helen Dale is here with another look at what social media companies are up to around the world. As ever, of course, we do need to hear from you. What are you seeing? What are you being told? And where are you going? I spoke to someone last night who assured me that life for many people has already returned to much more normalcy than the government could possibly guess at. 0344 499 1000. Also, LaDonna Harvey joins us from the USA with the latest on Tiger Woods and what really happened uh, on the road and what really happened before uh, that car crash that could have been so much worse for him. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I can't actually believe it's Thursday already. This another week has gone completely flying by. You know, we are going to be in March very shortly, less than uh, two weeks away, probably 10 days away. Uh, you're going to be sending your children back to school, which I think most parents are genuinely quite excited about. However, we still do have this kind of hangover about masks, about testing and about how exactly it's all going to work. 
We did a survey yesterday based upon the fact that nobody could quite understand how YouGov managed to get the completely wrong way round survey brigade to say that 80 odd percent of people in this country would approve of children wearing masks, not just in the school, but in classes and throughout the course of the day for more than seven hours. Absolutely outrageous. Let's talk to Brendan Chilton, uh, who is CEO of the Independent Business Network, of course. Brendan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you too. What are you making of this whole schools conversation? Because clearly um, it's, uh, it's, it's getting quite a lot of people exercised. I can't quite understand how you, Gov, have managed to get the mood of the nation quite as wrong as they did, because certainly uh, 55,000 people have voted on our YouTube poll and they're all very much against it. Well, Mike, I am quite, you know, accepting that they got it wrong. I mean, they got the referendum wrong. They got the last general election <laughs> wrong. They're being very consistent. Yes. Uh, so I'm not surprised at all. But uh, to be serious for a moment, I think uh, it is right that children are not being forced uh, to wear these masks. It was an impossible demand to be placed on teachers. Uh, Their primary role at the moment is making sure our children and young people catch up with their learning. They're safe in school and they're actually at a desk getting education funneled into them, not worrying whether or not they've got a mask on or not, Uh, particularly in uh, younger years and in kindergarten. I imagine it would be almost impossible Uh, to ensure that little children keep masks on. So this is a sensible decision, and I hope most schools uh, will be sensible and pragmatic and will not enforce it. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. But it does make you wonder, doesn't it, about the efficacy of the advice? Because, of course, those people who are in favour will say things like, well, of course, in France they wear masks, in the UAE they wear masks all day in school. What's the problem? You know, but if you haven't been doing that, then it's a massive problem, isn't it? Well, it is. And it's part of the the big problem of this pandemic has been government communications. Uh, If if anything comes out of this, uh, it tells us that number 10 needs an entirely new communication staff uh, because we've had such inconsistent messages throughout this whole pandemic. It's led to people being arrested and punished, businesses being hit and now this latest uh, debacle on school masks. And while other countries, it's perfectly normal. Uh, to have face coverings in in much of the Muslim world. It's perfectly normal. In East Asia, I've I've been there. They wear masks all the time. It's not normal here in the UK. We shouldn't be insisting on it. A huge part of human interaction, a huge part of employment, socialising, is the ability to see other people's faces. Uh, And so certainly we don't want that imposed here. No, exactly right. And even a lot of teachers I've spoken to have said they don't want that to be the case because they can't really talk to students. They can't talk to pupils uh, in the same way if you can't see their facial expression. Quite right. And particularly I'm a a school governor. I have been for about 10 years. And particularly with young children uh, that are just coming into school, particularly from deprived backgrounds, they need to be able to see the teacher's face when they're speaking. A lot of them have got speech and language difficulties and other communication problems. And so the ability to see the face and the expressions of the mouth uh, whilst the teacher is speaking is very important to their communication and development. And uh, I would suggest sticking a mask on them might hinder that somewhat Uh, because you can't see what they're doing. Yes. I don't think think too many people would disagree with you, Brendan. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the budget next week because Chancellor Rishi Sunak starting to put out sort of feelers, if you like, as all good chancellors do, about what is likely to be more of a giveaway budget than, than a takeaway budget. I think that's a good thing, don't you? I absolutely do. Any tax rises right now or spending cuts would be a disaster. We've got, a, a, it appears, the start of a recovery coming up now, but it's very fragile and could easily be lost. If we start taxing business, 
uh, stopping them employing new people and expanding the, expanding their firms. If we don't slash VAT, I mean, people have less spending power. And our organisation, the Independent Business Network, has made a submission to government calling for equally radical measures. We've had the worst recession in 300 years. We need radical measures to meet what we've experienced to boost the economy. Absolutely right. And as far as the uh, specifics of it, so-called uh, the stamp duty for at least another m- three months, VAT slash for hospitality, uh, 5p fuel duty hike axed, um, and a bit of uh, sort of reasonably good news for, for corporation tax, I suppose, as well. Um, eventually, though, there will be have to, some of these decisions, these hard decisions will have to be made, won't they? It will indeed. Um, they, I would suggest that that needs to happen later this year, once we have returned to normal. Um, we cannot continue to borrow uh, more than we are at the minute and continue to spend as if there's an endless money pot. Uh, I always makes me laugh. They always said Jeremy Corbyn uh, found the magic money tree. Well, this chancellor's got an entire forest. I mean, he's keeping the whole country <laughs> subsidised and publicly owned. Uh, this can't continue. But right now, I think the priority has got to be to get the economy growing. And around October, November time, once we've returned to normal, once hopefully much commercial activity is resumed as to how it was before, we should then look at measures to paying this off. And I think at that point, some very difficult challenges uh, are going to face the Chancellor, particularly on things such as public sector pay uh, and particularly on things like foreign aid uh, and other capital programmes. What we really need to do right now is to let the private sector off the leash. Mm. We need to encourage businesses to set up. We need to make it easier and quicker to set up, set up a business. We need a more flexible workforce. So things like temporary agency workers need to be looked at to ensure that workers, uh, firms can take on more workers and quickly. Because every worker employed is someone paying tax, which means the government can pay off the debt. Every worker employed has got spending power to use in the shops. So we need a massive, massive employment drive. Exactly right. And what are you finding, Brendan, from your own kind of um, uh, area down there in in Ashford in Kent, as far as businesses are concerned? How have they been coping uh, with all of these uh, restrictions? How have they been able to do business if they have? Uh, What's what's the picture? Well, just in my own borough, where I am in Ashford in the middle of Kent, throughout the pandemic, 300 Homestar businesses have launched, uh, you know, cake baking, food delivery services, cleaning and things like this. So Mm. people have been innovative. Uh, throughout this crisis. But what we need is government not to do its traditional approach and go, ah, a business, let's tax it to the hilt. What we need now is a government that says, right, business, well done to those who survived, well done to the innovators, we're not going to get in your way, go out there now and grow the British economy. So we need local authorities uh, to be reducing licensing restrictions, we need them to be making sure in their town centres that their high streets are the best places for businesses to be set up. So that means freezing parking charges and things like this to get people back into the high streets. Mm. That's what we need to do. And how about even not just freezing parking charges, but not continuing the massive sort of ramping up uh, of parking paying uh, areas because certainly in parts of Sussex I've seen um, they've started installing these ridiculous um, solar powered uh, parking ticket machines in places where you didn't used to have to pay at all to park right now I don't know how much these machines cost but I don't think they're cheap but what I have seen is an awful lot of people not parking there now uh, because they don't want to pay even though it's not that much money, it's the principle. and so therefore those people are not going to the shops where those parking spots are they're going elsewhere Quite right. Local authorities for far too long have used parking income as a supplementary to their budgets and they shouldn't be doing it. 
uh, a parking charge is in essence a tariff to access the town centres where you live. Mm. And uh, in a world where we want to bring down tariffs, I would suggest local authorities should be reducing their parking income, especially right now. The biggest issue high street businesses have are business rates and parking charges. The government, it looks as though they're going to freeze business rates for the coming year. They need to look at that in the long term as well as to whether that's the right system. The other angle here is local authorities need to stop being greedy and freeze and reduce, if possible, parking charges to make it easier for people to get into the town centres and to support their local businesses. Exactly right. And the other thing that I'm told uh, is happening, and I was told this by Mr Pothole, who's one of our regular contributors, that basically a lot of local councils are now saying, oh, we haven't really got the money to do a lot of the services that we used to do, even though uh, council tax is probably going to be going up. However, uh, we're also not going to be filling in potholes. We're not going to be uh, providing this service, that service and the other service. I mean, I wonder whether somebody needs to get a grip of some of these councils and just say, look, guys, you know, everybody's in the same boat here you can't just suddenly withdraw services on the grounds that you haven't got enough money if you're collecting more quite right i mean i personally think local government across the united kingdom is a bit of a joke uh we've got councils that are elected on tiny turnouts we've got far too many councils why do we need twenty-five thousand councillors in england we right, don't right. uh we need to adopt in, i'm going to say this as a, a eurosceptic we need a, a much more continental style of government at the local level a town mayor and a small council that scrutinizes a much bigger area it would save millions of pounds uh to the british taxpayer i think the other point that we need to also acknowledge here is that uh, local government has for some years, I appreciate, uh, taken hits to their income. But a lot of councils up and down the UK have been quite innovative. Uh, They've purchased large buildings, rented them out to office blocks and things like this. Uh, Of course, that's going to have to change now. But we need local authorities to be more commercial and more entrepreneurial in their approach and look at where they can make savings, particularly on things like parking charges Mm. to local residents. So shouldn't they be looking post-Brexit as well at kind of changing the way that they do business? Because, I mean, we know how many uh, times you drive into some uh, unknown village in the middle of nowhere to find that it's twinned with Oxair or somewhere like that because they all love going on these little jollies across to the European Union uh, to hang out and eat some uh, saucisson or something like that. (laughs) But can we we, we not get them to kind of change their, their outlook on life rather than trying to twin themselves constantly with places in other parts of the world? They actually concentrate on the businesses of their own communities. Quite right. I mean, for me, local councils provide, they should provide a very important local role to the local community, caring for elderly people in care, uh, organising education locally and doing the usual things like collecting the bins and all that, which, uh, you know, we all depend on. Councils are there to provide basic services and they should be looking at high pay. There are extremely well paid executives uh, in the public sector and in local government. They should be looking at curbing executive pay uh, in those areas. They should also be looking at their assets. Uh, Every local authority has got assets spread across their borough. And if they can sell them off, make a bit of money uh, to supplement incomes or reduce council tax. Who knows? Well, Uh, Well, I only found out the other day, apparently Sadiq Khan's planning on putting London's council tax up 10 percent. I don't remember him asking anybody about that. Well, I quite agree. I mean, as even though I'm a Labour man, I would not be advocating increasing taxes at this time. And I think he should be listening uh, to the leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, who has said we should not be putting up taxes right now. Uh, the last thing London needs, or indeed any other part of the country right now, is increasing taxes. If anything, we need to be cutting them yes. uh, to give people more money to spend and to stimulate the economy. And since you are a Labour man, Brendan, and as I said at the top of the show, one of the, one of the, few, one of the few Labour people that I actually get on with, um, you know, oh, what do you make kind, of poor old Sir Keir Starmer? I mean, nobody's li- I don't imagine his wife even listens to him. I mean, nobody's listening to Keir Starmer anymore, are they? 
I think Zakir Sama, to be fair to him, he's had, it's been very difficult. He became leader of the Labour Party in the middle of a pandemic. And of course, the, the right thing to do, I think, is particularly on the public health issues to be supporting the government. But after the year we've had, the Labour Party right now should be much further ahead than it is in the opinion polls. Um, we should not be in a position where after the worst recession in 300 years, we are still two to three points behind mm. the Conservative Party. Far, far bigger improvement than the mess we had under Jeremy Corbyn. We're on the right track, but we've got to pick up the pace now because the election will come sooner than we think. And if Labour is to stand a chance of denting that majority or even securing its own majority, we've got to up our game. No, absolutely right. And what about Brexit? Because that's kind of disappeared off the front pages for the moment. Uh, obviously, the Northern Ireland story still bumbles around and, and bubbles under. I speak to Kate Hurry every now and again, um, and she keeps saying, look, all the government has to do uh, is sort this out, and they can sort it out. What do you make of, uh, of the Northern Ireland protocol situation? Well, I think Kate Hoey is doing a fantastic job and other individuals such as uh, Ben Habib, who I understand has launched a uh, legal case against the government on this. Mm. Uh, it's an absolute disgrace that part of the United Kingdom has essentially been siphoned off um, to uh, the Republic and to the European Union. How can it be that British firms in Great Britain cannot freely trade with other British firms in Northern Ireland? Mm. How could it be that flowers and shellfish and wood and anything from Great Britain can't go to another part of our country, Northern Ireland? It needs to be organised and sorted out now, because the risk, if it isn't sorted out, is that the orientation of Northern Ireland will look south to Dublin and look to the European Union. And we could see in the not too distant future a border pole where if the British government has abandoned the province, which it has at the moment, they might say, well, if you've abandoned us, we don't want to be with you anymore. So Boris Johnson, yeah. get your act together and bring Northern Ireland back into the union. I mean, fortunately for Boris, I suppose, um, the, 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 the government of the Republic seems to be upsetting its um, uh, citizens even more than, than ours are being upset by our government because they're putting in one of the longest lockdowns in the history of the world. Uh, an awful lot of people in Dublin that I've spoken to recently are saying this is ridiculous, absolutely nonsensical. Well, it is. And Ireland's economy, of course, is much smaller uh, than the United Kingdom. You might guess from my name, Brendan, it's not uh, an Anglo-Saxon name. <laughs> <laughs> there is uh, Irish heritage there. Yeah. So I obviously want Ireland to do well. But I think um, Ireland needs to realise uh, that it is very much dependent on trade with the United Kingdom. Uh, it's been quite interesting how various Taoiseachs over the past few years have been very much batting for the European Union uh, in creating obstacles for a good positive deal between the EU and the UK much to their own detriment. Mm. And no amount of EU state fund, well, there's no EU funding, they've got no money of their own. Um, no amount of money from uh, the collected funds of the European Union will supplement any loss in trade between the Republic and Great Britain. Mm. Absolutely right. I see, by the way, that Build today has got a front page uh, in which they're praising Britain's rollout of the vaccine uh, because they're still pretty upset about the way that the EU has handled their vaccine rollout. And even Angela Merkel uh, is getting it. They're saying that uh, they've used the word, I don't know if you've got any German in you, but they're using the word Benelden, uh, which apparently means envy uh, in Germany because yes. uh, they're now braced for a virus third wave because only 4% of the public have been vaccinated. Well, it, it is amazing, isn't it? We were told uh, by many of the Remainers in this country uh, that if we didn't opt into the EU vaccination programme, uh, we'd all be dead by mm, now right. uh, and we'd all be doomed. Well, actually, quite the opposite has happened. We've excelled in this. I think we're just behind Israel in the international league table. It goes up and down slightly every day, yeah. but we're much further ahead than the EU. 
And to see this headline from the leading German newspaper is a right smack in the face uh, yeah. for Angela Merkel yeah. and the Eurocrats. Uh, and I think the European Union is going to have to seriously look at itself. If it wants to survive, it cannot continue to impose these top-down, centralised measures on such a diverse population and such a diverse set of nation-states. There's got to be reform if it survives. If not, Germany, come and join us on the outside. It's great. Absolutely right. I mean, I mean, haven't forfend, but we could even, Brendan, suggest that we start up a trading uh, organisation uh, with other European countries, just like the EU used to be. <laughs> Well, well, who, who would have thought? Eh? Who would have thought? I mean, we could do. I mean, they could come and join our customs union if they like. Yeah. And uh, we, could, yeah, we could give them our vaccines. <laughs> um, but I personally think we should be giving our surplus vaccines uh, to the developing world. And when I say the developing world, I mean the Commonwealth. Uh, those countries who we shamefully left behind when we went into the EU, if we do have surpluses, I would far see us helping those in the Commonwealth that have, despite uh, being a member of the EU, remain fairly loyal to us and we should help them out. Absolutely right. Brendan, delight to speak to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network, a man uh, who speaks an awful lot of common sense. Uh, as I said, he's a guy who knows about business. He knows about small business. He knows about tax. He knows about how uh, companies should be treated. He knows how independent councils should be running. And he knows about how outside of the European Union, Britain uh, will be prospering. They just need to sort out the Northern Ireland situation uh, because that I have to say, is the only real fly in the ointment about leaving the European Union. If you live in Northern Ireland, you know, you want to get this sorted out sooner rather than later. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, talk to Helen Dale uh, about a great many things. Helen, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. I'm feeling good this week because despite some people's kind of uh, trepidation, shall we say, about Boris Johnson's um, roadmap plan, I'm, I'm encouraged that we're sort of, it feels as though we're starting to move in the right direction. You know, there's people talking about the Reading Festival going ahead, people talking about, you know, restaurants opening up at some point, schools opening up. It feels like we're kind of on the, uh, on the downward slide, if you like, from the, the peak I think so. Yes, it's the it's clear that the vaccines are working. Yes. I mean, I said this last week, but now we've actually got data, British data, not just Israeli data to show how effective they are. So the vaccines are clearly working. And uh, uh, and I think Boris Johnson got burnt badly in two directions. First, with uh, eat out to help out, which was too quick. Mm. And then when he was bounced into the second lockdown because there was a leak. And so you had that sense of a government flailing. Yeah, and the, the, the various problems, and I've talked about this a few times on, on, my, on your, the Independent Republic, mm. of uh, low state capacity. But Britain has started to find its historic state capacity. You know, this, this, this was the, the civilization that, that had this enormous empire and so on and so forth. And you can't do those things unless you're competent. No. And it started to find the state capacity first with the Brexit deal. Lord Frost did a terrific job of that. And now with the vaccine rollout. Although I will say that if the NHS was designed for anything, it is for a vaccine rollout. And it really is doing it with military precision. Yes. I mean, I must say, I've been, I think, probably like most people, very, very pleasantly surprised that we have, in fact, proven ourselves to be world beating, uh, despite the fact that we often say that we're world beating. We're not always. But but in this instance, no. I mean, I was looking at uh, the German newspaper Bild this morning, uh, which is saying they're envious of us because they've literally only vaccinated 4% of their population. And they're now worried that in Germany there might be another spike because they haven't got enough vaccinations to go around. 
And in that case, you can genuinely, you can't blame the Germans or Angela Merkel for this. You genuinely have to sheet that one home to the European Union. And even Guy Verhofstadt was popping off on Twitter yesterday saying we have absolutely, excuse my French, screwed the pooch on this. Yeah. You know, the, the Brits negotiated a proper contract and the and there's watertight drafting and we stuffed it up. And as a, a, a friend of mine who's also, like me, qualified in both common law and Roman law, I saw him make the point yesterday that it's not a flaw. A few people were saying, oh, common law is better than Roman law. And that's not actually the issue. There are very, very good contractual draftsmen in Roman law or civilian systems that have been going back to antiquity. I can show you Roman Empire period contracts that are beautifully drafted and that modern lawyers look at them and go, good job. <laughs> it is literally a case of the European Union not getting the best people for the job to do this. And he made the comment if it were a french arms supplier or a german car de dealer doing this the job would have been done properly mm. well and that kind of highlights the the difficulty of running a federal state which is what the, U uh, the eu yes. think they're trying to do even though they're not very good at it um because you've spoken before about the way that australia works and we'll come to that in a moment but but you know the way that they are not really built for speed they're not really built for um, detail really because they get They're not built for detail or nimbleness no they get bogged down in both of those things um which is uh, which is you know the enemy of progress i think in all in all matters so now i think that the i wonder if the, the the individual states of the eu will try and separate themselves a little bit more legally in terms of uh, the way that they draft legislation and the way that they get things done because they don't really want to rely on an organization that can't organize well, that's basically the problem. Federalism, it, it's becoming increasingly clear, and just to move on to your next point with, with uh, uh, the Australian system, uh, Australia is a federal system, so is Germany, and they're mm. both very well-run countries. Uh, the United States is a federal system, and it's not a well-run country. Right. Federalism does require high state capacity, and it's become very clear that the European Union is an entity separate completely from the individual uh, member states of the European Union, which, of course, vary enormously. There are lots of them. They're all very different. They're different cultures and histories. But the EU as an entity struggles with state capacity. And that was exposed quite has been exposed very badly with the vaccine procurement stuff up. Mm, exactly right. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, when you look at the US system, they almost seem to be overburdened with red tape in a different yes. way, because the way that their, their states are structured um, seem to be overladen um, with representation, don't they? Well, yes, they're overgoverned. And I mean, Australians sometimes complain that they're overgoverned, but Americans are overgoverned in this really petty, petty fogging, awful way. Yeah. The thing that always stuns me every time I go to the US is occupational licensing. Mm. You know, you have to get a special qualification and do so many hours of work experience to do the braiding, you know, that lovely, those lovely braids oh, yeah. that a lot of African-Americans yes. wear. You know, and this is the kind of thing, I mean, I can do it because I've got very curly hair. I used to do it to myself when I was a kid to keep it off my face when I was playing sport. And the thing is, it's the kind of thing that your mum or your relatives teach you. It's right. not the kind of thing you learn in a, in a university course or something. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, do you know, I heard you know. another one of those crazy things last night. I was talking to my sister in Connecticut, where she lives, where they've now put in a property tax on cars, right? So when you buy a car... You, have, you don't pay VAT in the same way that we do. They have a sales tax, but you also have a property tax on a car that you own or you lease 
on the basis that it is worth property money to you as an individual, which seems to me to be a mass- massive overreach for a place when I first lived in America. Connecticut didn't even have any income tax uh, state level. Yes, I know. It's just it's really quite strange. And, and this is why I mean, I've been fielding questions all week on this. And that's why I wrote it very short notice for reaction. Mm. Uh, Ian Martin's magazine, that piece on Australia v Facebook, but it wasn't just Australia v Facebook. That's only about a third of the article. I also wanted to deal with, well, how, how has Australia managed to come out at the other end of a trade war with China, smelling like roses and steaming out of a recession? Yeah. And how has Australia managed to make manage coronavirus so well? And so I finished up having to deal with the fact that you know, Australia spent five years using the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is their regulator for competition law, yeah. um, uh, spent five years working out how to design this legislation. It was designed and drafted with very great care. And I know from being involved in parliamentary drafting while I was working in Canberra, in Parliament House for the politician I was working for, I was involved in the marriage equality legislation Mm. in Australia. The care with which the Australian system takes with the development of policy. um, I mean, I I saw it being described over here as a link tax and I was thinking, no, it's not link tax. It won't be a link tax. So I went and looked at the the regs. And of course, it's not a link tax. It's an it's what it does is it uses the arbitration framework that is actually built into Australia's constitution Mm. and was historically used to uh, set wage wage rates, which are known as awards in Australia. It's Australia doesn't have a minimum wage. It has lots and lots of little minimum wages across different industries. And these are known as awards. Okay, And how do they differentiate between who gets what at a minimum wage level then? Basic combination of things, they'd use age. So uh, very young people are paid quite a lot less before they turn 21 Mm. in Australia and the wage is gradually increased. So that's within an industry. And then across the industries, uh, it's determined uh, partly through negotiation with the unions, partly through how much skill is involved in the occupation, and partly on existing history in terms of involvement in in large complex projects. Mm. So, so you've got this arbitration framework, and that is what has been done to the tech giants. So they they they've been fed into the, this very traditional Australian system. And conciliation and arbitration is a head of power in the constitution that was set up in 1901. Mm. And it's always worked well. Yes, well, it seems to have worked well in this case as well, because it seems as though certainly Facebook, who looked like they were kicking off about it, have kind of uh, buckled under. Well, yes, what it is, is Amazon tried this as well, or in that case, although in Amazon's case, they took on the Australian Taxation Office, which Mm. is the Aussie equivalent of HMLC. Whereas in this case, they've taken on effectively the government in the form of the constitutional arbitration power that it's got. And... uh, what they perhaps did not realise, and certainly Google didn't realise, which is why they buckled very quickly, mm. is that Australia will just say, all right, if you don't like it here, go. Yeah. And they'll do that to immigrants and they'll do it to corporations. A lot of people don't realise that's yeah. a completely consistent cultural attitude that the country just ha- happens to have towards people who, who want to work in Australia, mm. which was why when I wrote 
couple of months ago, a piece for Standpoint. It was very much about Australian rules. Yes. Australians and it's have interesting. a very clear sense of themselves as, as a as a rule-driven society. Yes. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in our, in our country, in our society, that probably to a lot of people would be anathema because, you know, we get the opposite um, as a kind of narrative that we're very welcoming here in the UK and we want to welcome anyone who comes here. And if you don't have that belief, then you must be some kind of horrible racist, fascist, nationalist, flag-waving maniac. Whereas in Well, Australia... I mean, as I've pointed out to quite a few people, one of the reasons why you've had so many lockdowns in this country and they've been so appalling is precisely because Britain didn't close the borders. Right. You yeah. Know, I've had Australian friends say, my goodness, the UK wasted its island status, didn't it? Mm. Well, this is it. I mean, as recently as, as, as recently as just before the borders were properly shut, um, 50,000 people a week were coming into Heathrow Airport. And I mean, that was just before Christmas. I mean, I went to meet my, my own daughter coming in from Dubai, uh, watching planes coming in from China, you know, for all parts of Africa, all over the world. Planes were arriving literally every sort of 10 minutes. And I'm going, I'm sorry, I thought we were in the middle of a pandemic. Where are all these people yes. going? Yes, well, as and Australia used Nassim Taleb's argument that lockdowns are what happen when quarantine fails. Yeah. So if you don't want lockdowns, you have to have quarantine, basically. Mm. Um, and the only Australian state to have any lock, serious lockdown was, of course, Victoria. And what happened there? They had problems with their mm. hotel quarantine system. Yes. What about so, the uh, the future for um, for, for sort of uh, social media companies like Facebook? Um, and other high-tech, big-tech companies, because this is quite a line in the sand that Australia have drawn, isn't it? Well, I have been hearing on the Bush Telegraph and even seen some news reports that the U European Union has is effectively borrowing a bit of Australia's state capacity because its directive for uh, its digital directive doesn't work. And they've always struggled with it. They've got real problems with it. So now you, and because all the legislation is just there and the ACCC's report is there, you've literally because it's the laws of physics with te technology like this, you can literally just pick up the Australian system and drop it in other countries. So it wouldn't surprise me to see first the EU, because they've been wanting to do this for a while and haven't been able to, but then perhaps other jurisdictions mm. taking the Australian system, modifying it to suit their local conditions and then, and then making use of that, of that system it's just, uh, I mean, you cannot have uh, uh, corporations, and this is, I mean, it's extraordinary to see left-wing people su supporting big tech against a sovereign state, mm. but you cannot have corporations telling sovereign states and democratically elected governments how to run their internal affairs. That's no. just not acceptable. No, and this was the year, wasn't it, I suppose, and when I say the year, I suppose I mean 2020, um, in which these big companies thought that they were kind of supranational, that they were hmm. astride the world like behemoths, you know, that the Colossus of Rhodes was actually, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. And you just think, yeah. well, no, that's not what we're going to let you do. Well, no, and it does become it becomes the, a classic case of, and you could use the the, the, the little one liner that um, that uh, quite a lot of people in Australia do, which is to Mark Z to Zuckerberg and to um, to uh, the the Google, Google board yeah. is very much along the lines of, who elected you, mm. and that does matter. That is yes. hugely hugely important. Well, in our uh, conversation, which will be going out uh, hopefully later today, Toby Young, Christopher Snowden, talking about freedom of speech and freedom of expression in the future and how Toby Young raised this idea that, you know, he's worried that if YouTube and the like can somehow make it impossible for you to say certain things on their channel, 
you know, what happens when that moves into another uh, a sphere? Say, for example, uh, they don't like what you might say about climate change. And therefore, you can't then put a video up on their on their uh, platform. Well, I do think it is significant that one of the things that Facebook did is exposed itself as being terribly incompetent mm. and cat-handed in Australia. A lot of people have got the idea and had got the idea in their head that these tech giants were much more competent than sovereign governments mm. and could just run circles around them and you know, had this idea that they were all seeing and all knowing and all competent. And when Facebook pulled news from Australian, uh, from its, its own Austra pages, Austra Australian pages, yeah. they didn't just do that. They wiped out the Queensland Department of Health. They took all the coronavirus um, advice down, which is different in Australia from here, for, as we've discussed. Mm. They, they also took down all the bushfire alerts from the Country Fire Authority <laughs> and the Country right. Fire Service, right. which in a country like Australia is actively dangerous. Now, a friend of mine in Australia, Stephen Barrett, is a firefighter, and he said they have their own internal software that provides alerts within the... Uh, within the country fire service and the country fire authority. Yeah. But the problem is they were using Facebook to get information out to remote communities if they were at risk. Yeah. And he, he told me, he said, the day that, that Facebook did that was the day of in two states, South Australia and New South Wales, of the highest fire danger for the whole year mm. so far. I know. So, well, I mean, this really, well, I mean, anyone really can tell annoyed you. a lot of people. Well, of course. And anyone can tell you, Helen, that anyone who thinks hiring Nick Clegg's a good idea is clearly not on the right side of history uh, or indeed intelligence. But that's another matter. Let's talk briefly uh, before we go about this uh, uh, business of anonymous Twitter accounts and, and anonymity uh, that you wrote about um, in uh, Law and Liberty this week. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, basically, what Law and Liberty, uh, I've taken a job there, uh, uh, basically a part time role as a senior writer. And they asked me, do you want to write a review of one of the Titania McGrath books? Mm. And I said, well, it's not just a book. It's a phenomenon of people who use parody Twitter accounts. And Titania McGrath is just the most famous of them. And so I provided the history of how Twitter has always tolerated parody accounts of politicians. As long as you clear, clearly mark them as parody, they won't delete you, you won't get zapped. Mm. And I mean, and some of them are enormously popular. I found the one that uh, the, the Vladimir Putin ripoff, there's a parody account of Vladimir Putin, yeah. and it's got more followers than you and I added together. <laughs> I mean, these these have always been a thing. Yes. But well, what... funnily enough, there's about four parody uh, Twitter accounts of me, believe it or not. Yes. And some, oh, of, them, yes. some of them are even funnier than I am. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> but but what Andrew Doyle did, and the thing is, he didn't start this. Andrew Doyle wasn't the first person to do this. There were other people who did it. There's a comedian who I've actually seen who is very good. Her name is Lisa Graves, who's also a graphic designer. And mm. she actually designed the, the cartoon face of T T Titania McGrath for Andrew. Right. Now, she was Godfrey Elfwick. Okay. The genderqueer Muslim atheist. Yeah. And the thing is, she got banned. For and being offensive? Some, yeah, for being offensive. And she set up several others, and they've all been banned as well. Mm. And there was this period where you didn't know whether Titania McGrath was going to stay there or not be there anymore, because it is very clear that Twitter has a problem as a corporate entity with satire of a personality type. Yes. They can deal with the satire of a real person, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, 
Keir Starmer. They're yeah. a fake account. And I'm sure there are for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris yeah. as well, but I haven't looked. But I'm sure they will exist. And, like, you've got four. I mean, these world leaders have probably got 30 each yes, or something. Yes, I imagine so. Uh, and uh, so it's clear the problem they struggle with is the personality type. Mm. Now, what Titania McGrath does, so, what Doyle does with her so well, is this very, very posh clueless woman mm. who thinks she's punching up and saving the world and and being a radical intersectional intersectionalist slam poet when you know she lives in kensington and right. has a country estate in the but Cotswolds. i mean the great thing about good parody is that it's very close to the reality of the world and that's why it's funny because she actually could be if you read it in a particular way uh, as ridiculous as many of the real people uh, who tweet out about those same kinds of things, virtue signals well, in particular. Well, that's why Andrew Doyle was quite cross, and I wrote about this in my piece for Law and Liberty, and I quoted him on it. He was quite cross when his cover was blown because he wanted people, and there were a, before she were, before he was outed, there were a percentage of people who thought she was real and would get into enormous Twitter arguments with her. Mm. And yeah, and it was actually very funny because it became that thing. There's this there's this expression known as Poe's law, yeah. which is where some parody is so close to the real thing you can't tell the difference. Exactly. And so people engage <laughs> with the parody as though as though it's real. Yes. And that's well, I think we've probably all fallen victim. We've probably all fallen victim to it where you pick something up. There's one of an MP which is particularly funny, um, and people fall for it all the time because they assume Hi. it's a real MP, uh, and she comes out with some ludicrous stuff, and people start attacking her for it. And you know. And it's you, not. And it's not, but it's actually not that far from what some MPs would have said, you know? Mm. So it's so quite he's funny. Very, very, he's very clever. And this is the one, this little book is for the one supposedly for kids. And it's even done like a traditional kids book. You know, it's got a wipeable cover. You know how, because, yeah, six yes. and seven-year-olds have yeah, got sticky fingers and yes. they put their sticky fingers all mm. over book covers. Yeah. And, and so it's got this wipeable cover. And I, when I was doing research for the Law and Liberty piece, I found the books that the Titania McGrath character names, all these sort of very woke kids books, I thought they were all jokes. Mm. And then I went on the Waterstones and Blackwell's websites and thought, oh, I just better check this or otherwise I'll drop myself in it in an, internet, in an American publication that's got a lot more readers than a lot of the publications yeah. I write for over here. And so I, I looked them up at Waterstones. I know they're real books. There are people out in the world. This is what I mean about not being able to tell the difference between Titania mm. and the real stuff. These books actually exist. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, my goodness me, this is bananas. It really is unbelievable stuff. Helen, great to talk to you once more. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Helen Dale uh, with her take on the way that Facebook has been beaten down uh, by the Australian government, rather cleverly, I'd have to say, and also about the whole uh, parody account business and humour and all of the rest of the stuff that social media seems to be incapable of understanding is quite remarkable, is it not? Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lots of you still are getting in touch about the wearing of masks for school children, the testing of school children. A lot of parents not happy about it at all. But what I can tell you uh, is that Nick Gibb, the education minister this morning, told Julie Hartley Brewer that neither of those things is mandatory. If you want to have your children tested twice a week, that's fine. If you don't, uh, you can object to it happening. Similarly, uh, there is no way they can invent 
a new law which says you must mask your children in order for them to go to school all day uh, for six, seven, and maybe even eight hours if they're travelling on uh, public transport as well. Let's talk now, though, to Hope Marshall, business owner at Support Local, because Hope uh, has been one of those people quite badly affected by uh, the lockdown restrictions, the ability uh, for businesses in this country to make money. Um, many of them have had to pivot into all sorts of different directions to try uh, and keep the businesses afloat, to try and keep their families afloat, indeed. Hope, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Yeah, very well indeed. You're in uh, Kent in Tunbridge Wells, I understand. Tell us about your kind of uh, experience in business since last March, if you like. So we were hosting um, essentially kind of like craft fairs. Um, Businesses rented a stall and sold to the public. Um, When COVID hit, this kind of completely wiped us out. so during the first lockdown, we tried to take things online. And then in between, we actually opened a shop instead. Um, right. This allows us to kind of have a rent-a-shelf system. Um, so less storeholders in a venue, less limiting the people that came in. Right. Um, and yeah. And was that, so what sort of stuff were you selling? Was it was it um, essentials, as it would be called? Because that seems to be one of the things that I find extraordinary is that a lot of businesses that can't open um, are complaining that, you know, you go to a garden centre um, and in a garden centre they're selling all kinds of stuff and sometimes because they're selling food, they're allowed to stay open. Yeah, it, it is quite frustrating. We, um, we're not essential items, so we had to shut every time we were told to. Um, we did contemplate going out and buying it quite a bit toilet roll so that we could (laughs) well do you know what i mean i've spoken to uh, there's a lady who we speak to on a fairly regular basis up in worcestershire um who has a stationery shop uh but she also sells coffee and muffins and that kind of thing it's not really food as you would call it necessarily but she has remained open despite the fact the police kept coming to see her handing her pieces of paper saying she was going to be fine and her argument was i'm in a shopping center wh smith's is over there they're doing yeah. all the same things I'm doing, except they're selling sandwiches and they're selling newspapers. So how is that fair? Uh, I agree with you. It's really tricky. It's, I'm, I'm not sure I quite get the Smiths one as well. No. So so how da- sort of damaging has it been financially for you, Hope? Um, we've had to place kind of thousands of pounds worth of refunds from our events that can go ahead. Um it's it's just been really tricky i mean to open and close a shop just constantly the yeah. amount of hours that i've put in is just insane it's really really difficult isn't it and and your shop is closed presumably at the moment in tunbridge yeah. wells it is yeah right and so when are you expecting that to to change is it may they're saying that you can open non-essential shops i think it's eight, uh, april it's april it? the 17th isn't it i'm i'm already confused there's so many rules <laughs> that come in every so often but but so i mean at least that's something isn't it i mean i've been saying this week that although people might want this to happen quicker and it may well happen quicker depending on how you know the vaccination rollout goes at least you've now got a point at which you can look forward to this is true. Um, my only concern is the business rates. So we were business rates exempt this whole time. And aren't they meant to be coming? I think they're meant to be coming back in at the end of March. Right. Well, we'll we'll find out, I guess, with the then the whole is going to cripple up. Yeah, we'll we'll find we'll, we hopefully we'll find out on Wednesday from Rishi Sunak what's going to happen. But I mean, all the indications seem to be that he's not going to put business rates up. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, as much as you can predict the way that these things go, but it looks as though he's looking not to put taxes up at this moment because it would be a bad idea, wouldn't it? I don't see how businesses are going to be able to cope 
means that so many have shut during this period. I just don't think we'll be able to cope. I mean, it seems as though your um, your organisation support local. Obviously, you would be talking to a lot of other shop owners, business owners as well. What's the what's been the general feeling when you talk to them? I think people still want to shop. I mean, when the shop was open, when we were allowed to open, we definitely saw lots of people coming in. I think they'd been bored, stuck inside. When the shops are allowed to open, I'm not seeing a change in footfall. I think we're still getting good footfall. Um, businesses, lots of businesses can't take their products online um, or don't have the time or the knowledge or the resources. Mm. So I do think it's important to you know, go to the shops and make the shops a safe environment where you can do that to support small businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know uh, an awful lot of smaller towns in Sussex, for example, where there's just completely closed down. There's nobody walking around. There's maybe only, say, I don't know, a dozen shops in the high street anyway. Uh, and apart from, say, the supermarket, there, uh, which is maybe a convenience store, really, they're all shut. Yeah. So um, as far as your kind of, I mean, do you have employees as well that you have to kind of keep happy or do you keep uh, to keep employed? So we have, yeah, so we have freelancers that come in and work for us and um, they're all kind of helping with moving it online. They mm. have been, they have put in so many hours um, just just opening and closing that shop constantly. And where we have a rent a shelf system, we've got, um, those are all individual stockists. Mm. So the stock rotation part of it is massive as right. well. Right. Um, yeah. So are else. you, are you, so are you now sort of buying, actively buying stuff then that you can sell in April then? So they um so they rent a shelf. So these businesses rent rent a shelf from us. Right. So um and then they keep their profits. So we could have twenty businesses in the shop who mm. all rent a fixture. Okay. And they keep their profits. Okay. It sounds fascinating. So um tell us how we can find uh what you sell, Hope, and what and what you do online. Where where can we do that? So it's um my website is www.com supportlocalpopup.co.uk okay brilliant well listen best of luck with it and um in next time in tunbridge wells i'll see if i can come and find it <laughs> thank you very much hope marshall there from uh, support local uh, which sounds like a fascinating idea of a shop front that actually rents shelves out to other small businesses and that's what i mean about the fact that business in this country and small business in particular uh, is very nimble and is very kind of um creative in the ways that it's been trying to stay afloat and make money uh, during this very difficult year that we've just had because imagine if you had a business that you couldn't uh, do anything with that you have stuff that you want to sell but you can't open in order to sell it absolutely maddening crazy mid-morning with mike graham talk radio now, I'm going to talk to a man now who must be about as happy a man as he can be or has been probably for the last several weeks and possibly months. David Kane, Festival Manager of the Cambridge Festival. David, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Very well indeed. This has got to be uh, very good news uh, for, for guys like yourself because one of the things that, that we really haven't been able to, to organise or go to or do is any kind of proper outdoor event, really. Oh, it's fantastic news. I mean, it's, it's across the board, it's good news. Whatever you're into, if it's football or theatre or, or going to the pub or any kind of festival event, it's all good news the way things are going at the moment. It really um, is. It's been, so, it's been so hard, Mike. I mean, this time last year, literally 12 months ago to the day, we was a week away from our, our Cambridge Science Festival, which was the last festival or public event we did. Mm. Um, that right at the start of the, the, the pandemic and what was happening in the UK, and that was 
very difficult time because we're trying to map our way through before there's any news or any lockdown what to do what not to do and we actually eventually cancelling that after four days and then we've had a whole year of planning for events but never knowing what the situation is going to be and we're really excited our Cambridge Festival is online it is digital but it launches in a month's time from now because we're just up against that edge of, of when things will be opening up more but yeah, it's, it's been such a strange time. If, if you work in public events or you love working with the public and you haven't been able to see anybody or work with anybody, you haven't seen our work colleagues, actually work with the public for yeah. a year. It's really, it's, it's so difficult, so difficult. Yes, and this is why I think it's been so brilliant. And I was sort of castigated for this on Monday because I was saying how pleased I was that there was now a plan, albeit that some people thought it's not working or uh, happening quickly enough. At least it's happening. Um, and the fact that now, you know, people are talking about something which you haven't even been able to think about really uh, for the longest time has got to be a big plus. And, and people also forget, I mean, I've, I've spent a long time over the last 12 months telling, saying to people, look, I don't want the pubs to open because I'm desperate for a drink. I can get a drink in any number of different places. But People that I know that own pubs, that run pubs, that run restaurants, that run events companies, that run nightclubs, you know, these are people who are the salt of the earth, the business backbone, if you like, of, of this country in the sense that people come here because of festivals, people come here because of the, the nightlife and because of the restaurants and, and like you employ so many people. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you look at, we have uh, about 100,000 people interactions across our festivals which we run, which is a huge number of people, but that's people coming into Cambridge and the surrounding area. They're going to cafes, they're travelling on the trains. So the impact on the economy, which, which spills through from the work we do, is huge. And we work with small catering suppliers and mm. people like that who we haven't been able to work with. So the economic impact is huge, I think, Mike. I think that's right. The planning's so key, though, is it's, it's knowing all of this kind of, you know, two days later you can open up or two days later you can close or a week. You can't do that if you're planning an event. You can't yeah. do it. I mean, Glastonbury cancelled much earlier than most people because we work on a six-month lead into our events and yeah. our programmes are set at least three months before them. So you need to know three months beforehand whether you can do things in person or not sure. or whether you're doing them online. Well, I mean, I... everybody will be the same exactly i'm assuming something as big as glastonbury you're building stages and you're sort of putting you know things together from about now before the summer right oh absolutely and we'd be doing the same we're much smaller scale obviously than glastonbury but our speakers need to be confirmed we need to have all of our catering our rooms booked our venues booked so we, we, but there's some good things that come out of it i have to be honest with that there's lots of kind of challenges with it but moving to doing things online and digitally has been completely new to our whole team we've never done anything online before for, for our upcoming festival next month but it's been a real good thing to do as well now i think it's really important to remember that there's been lots of challenges there's been lots of frustrations and things that have driving us crazy the last right. year but there's some good things that are coming out of it we're doing much we've we've learned new skills we, we're able to reach wider audiences so mm. we're keeping that in mind oh i think so i think i've been i've been incredibly impressed david i have to say with the kind of um innovative uh, things that all sorts of businesses have done that restaurants that I know that have suddenly turned themselves into you know home uh, dinner machines so you can order like a four course dinner from a, a quite an expensive restaurant you pay quite a lot of money for it but they're making money doing it and I think it's amazing what what some people have done a friend of mine is a, a sort of produ producer has been doing a, a musical version of the great Gatsby um, in uh, a theatre in London which is on online only you know and they're doing it as a sort of pay-per-view it's been quite remarkable really 
Oh, it has. And the input we've had, we've done lots of work kind of filming already. And we've gone into places like the Zoology Museum in Cambridge, which is closed, but we've been able to get in there to do filming with people. So for the festival that's coming up, it's not just people talking on Zoom from their bedrooms. We've actually got some on location <laughs> stuff we've managed to to, to arrange and to, and to do. Um, but it does give you new opportunities. You can engage with people. If you're in a lecture theatre and you've got 250 people coming to one of our events, mm. only one or two people get to ask a question or, or engage with the speakers. Whereas if you're online, potentially everybody can. Mm. And potentially you're not limited to 250 people. You know, you can just keep going and you can reach right around the yeah. world. So there's, there's some positives which are coming out of it. Oh, I think so. Yeah, the global reach thing is very interesting. And I also, mm. I'm, I'm, I've been very amused in various different parts with, with sort of Zoom calls that have gone wrong you know, people that have, I remember there was a, um, a, one of the Downing Street press briefings where a guy from the Guardian stood up and he wasn't wearing any trousers. You know, that kind of thing. It was just hilarious. I mean, there'll be some fantastic kind of, you know, compilation videos doing the rounds. But, uh, but I guess now you can look forward to a combination of those things. Like you can have a festival now, which is both online and in person. Absolutely. And that's what we're looking forward to. We, we, we've kind of looked this, this year has been a, a really big steep learning curve. We never want to go through it again. We never want to go through having to cancel a festival again. Um, we thought it was really important. We did have a festival this year, though. We wanted to put that marker in, you know, whether it's online, wherever it is, rather than just having a big gap for 18 months or two years and nothing happens, because it's really important that we give our researchers and academics the opportunity to speak to the public and the public to speak back to them because hey that, that's the whole point of us being here as a, a university sure. and, and engaging with them and how have you all survived have you had some help from the government because i know presumably a lot of performers a lot of speakers would have struggled um to get themselves any kind of remuneration during this period we're really fortunate because we are we are you know we work within the university the university funds our work and their commitment has been absolute throughout they haven't kind of looked to change things or, or what have you so we've been really lucky with that and we've maintained our sponsors and um, people like astrazeneca and around europe sponsor us and they've committed to, to helping us so financially we haven't struggled i think it's more that's great you can have a vaccine you, uh, you can have a vaccine tent then can't you've you got astrazeneca for you We've got we've got some events online about, as you can imagine, about COVID and the pandemic. We've right. got some great stuff about vaccines. We've also got some really interesting one about my ICU, which is about um, Adam Brooks, our hospital here. They've worked with researchers to develop an iPad so people in intensive care and potentially on ventilators can communicate as well. Right. So all of that stuff comes up, comes up in our, our, our festival too. But we are looking ahead. We're yeah. looking very much to the future and later this year and when we go into 2022 having this wonderful digital engagement where you can speak to people and do new and innovative things but we miss being with people you know yeah. anyone who works in public engagement you want to be sitting in a room with people you want to be talking to them and having that in-person conversation absolutely and I, I heard somebody talking a few months back actually about how they just missed crowds you know because you can't remember the last time you were in a crowd and it's not something necessarily that I'm you know craving but I, I quite like the idea of being in a in a in a nightclub surrounded by other people who are not two meters away from me, you know. And hopefully, at some point this year, that that will be possible. Yeah, and it's that human experience, isn't it? We, we, you know, our festival's talking about very human things about life and and death within that, and, and and how we explore the world. And that's it's all about us as human beings. And there's only so much of that you can do at a distance. Mm. You, you do need to be actually sitting down with people and having that conversation with them sure and what are you hearing about sort of theatres and the opening of those because obviously in london a lot of the impresarios have said that you know it can be done we can do it we've got andrew lloyd webber's been particularly vocal about you know the, the the air conditioning systems and the way that they can get people back in because again it's a massive tourism attraction and i you know i can't wait for the day that we're allowing tourists back into the country <laughs> 
It's tricky, I think, is the answer to that, because it's about, there's a really tight balance, and this is what we found right from last year when we were having to cancel events, was it's a, as a risk thing about, keep. We, we want to keep people safe. We don't want to make, you know, cause any injury or any illness to people, but we're not experts. We're, we're not experts in COVID or, or, or how, you know, illnesses transmit or what have you. So that's the challenge, I think. It's not so much opening them up or how you do it it's just we don't you know people working in events aren't the experts mm. and perhaps more sometimes we need more input from the experts to give us the advice and the guidance like the you know good notice for opening up but good guidance that we should then follow because we have to follow it it's just not necessarily knowing what's the right thing to do i think that's always been the difficulty but that's why the vaccine has now made an, all the difference because it can it can provide us with a a, a kind of an environment where most people are not going to get very ill Oh, definitely. And, and, you know, once we get to that point, then we'll be welcoming people back in. We can we can kind of take away all of those restrictions and just look at well, the thing I'm really interested in is how people respond. I'm really hoping people do come back out to events. That's a great unknown. When yes. you close down everything for, for a year, you don't know. Some people will be really keen to get back into to nightclubs or football games or, or come to festivals. And some people might be a bit more cautious. So that's the thing we're not we just don't know yet what will happen. But yeah. that, having that digital backup or other ways of doing things still in place. I don't think we'll just go back to how we were. Uh, no, we'll, I, just, we'll no I, I suspect you're right. Ways. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there will always be people who will be cautious and people who might be nervous about mm. what, this, what they're going to be uh, exposing themselves to. But equally, uh, you know, we've all probably changed our behaviour in one way, shape or form in terms of, you know, how close you go to people at the moment and, you know, who you, yeah. you know, grab. And I mean, you know, I haven't hugged anybody for a long time, apart from members of my family. Not that I used to go around hugging complete strangers, you know, but, but you know, there was a sort of... Uh, um, there was a different behaviour pattern going on before all this happened. Oh, yeah, and just work as well. You know, I, I haven't physically spent any time with any of my work colleagues since the 16th of March last year. Yeah. We've all just been working in our, our back bedrooms and our kitchen right. tables, which is another amazing testament of doing this. But <laughs> just things like going back into the office will be will be weird. Yes. <laughs> it will just be a, a new, kind of a new thing for everybody again. Yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to be uh, coming into the studios here ever since it all was, was, was going on. But I know people who... Uh, for a long time weren't here and when they first came back it was quite sort of odd because you also you there's a certain amount of social activity um, that you need to do in order to remember how to do it do you know what I mean and it's almost like you you forget how to actually be around other people I think you had learned it as well I think that the dogs will miss me because I've been at home with the dogs so the dogs have really enjoyed being <laughs> at home for you I'm sure across the nation everybody is anyone who's got pets their pets have been yes. enjoyed well do you know they, at home for free. I've, I've done as conversations with vets who say that you know your dog when you do go back to work will suffer from separation anxiety so you'll have to kind of you know take that into account as well I can believe it unless unless we get permission to take them with us that might be that well that's the, the yeah. happy media that would always that would always be good well listen great news David where can people find out um, what you're doing what Cambridge Festival is all about so our, our website is www and it's festival.cam.ac.uk if you go to the University of Cambridge's website we're on the homepage there as well Brilliant. Uh, you know search engines as well and um, festival launches on the 26th of March through to the 4th of April we've got great stuff in there we've got David Attenborough speaking we, we can go to the bottom of an abyss you can find out about vaccines the whole world basically is in that festival and it's uh, yeah 
Google us, find us on the website. Some people have been at the bottom of an abyss for months, but that's another story we shall see. David, thanks very much indeed. Uh, David Kane there from the Cambridge Festival. Isn't it great to be able to talk about things that are happening, which are going ahead, which are going to be happening where you can actually physically go there? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.